Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SACS's SA Today podcast. My name is Michelle Botcher, and I'm an assistant professor and the student affairs program coordinator in the College of Education at Clemson University. I'm also your host for the program. Today, we're excited to have two authors of a recent College Student Affairs Journal article with us. This is the first in what we hope will be a continuing series of episodes about publications in the Saxa Journal. Before we start hearing more about their research, let's learn a little bit more about today's guests. While the podcast is focused on current issues, events, and trends, and in today's case, publications, it's also important that we get to know a little bit about our guests as we engage in our work and learning together since we're all more than just our jobs. My guests today are Zach Taylor and Ibrahim Bichuk. Did I get that right, Ibrahim? Yeah, perfect. Excellent. Um, doctoral, well, one, Ibrahim, you're still a doctoral student at the University of Texas, Austin, correct? Yep, yep. All right, and then also congratulations to you, Dr. Taylor, on your recent achievement. Um, and working with, as an institutional support consultant at the Trellis Company in Round Rock, Texas. So congratulations to you. Absolutely, thank you, Michelle. I really do appreciate, I know life is busy, the world is busy is an understatement, um, but I really appreciate both of you taking some time to talk with us today. And if we could start, and maybe Zach, if you don't mind going first, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey into your current role, kind of how'd you end up where you are? Sure, so I actually started kind of my semi-professional career in Wisconsin working for a Title I mentoring program called Future Phoenix, and it's still very kind of near and dear to my heart. We were serving uh, low-income elementary and middle schools, encouraging those students to consider college as kind of a post-secondary option. And so in working with those students, I really started to understand how complex and how convoluted a lot of higher education communication is. And so I stayed working with that program. I eventually became a high school teacher for five years and experienced a lot of those same hurdles alongside students. They would come to me with a college essay or they need help with their FAFSA or understanding what room and board meant. A lot of students didn't know what board meant and I was kind of a cultural translator for them. And that's when the light bulbs kind of became brighter. They were already on, but they became a little bit brighter at that point. So. Um, through those experiences in working with college aspiring students um, at the elementary, middle, and high school level, and then working alongside college students um, in my role as you know, admissions reader, I've also been a college instructor, I really found that higher education could be drastically simplified, and that's why I decided to try to advance my career and, and uh, pursue PhD programs landed on UT Austin because I think the world of Richard Reddick, I wanted to work with Rich um, and kind of be mentored by him. He's an incredible scholar and mentor and I really, you know, was blessed to have four good years with him. And he was the main reason I went to UT Austin and he really trusted me. I outlined my research agenda and he said, all right, kid, go do it. I'm not going to stop you. And that was probably the um, best mentoring that he could have provided for me is kind of letting me sink and swim. And this paper uh, came out of uh, that kind of curiosity and that 
kind of firsthand experience working with students and understanding that a lot of students just don't understand the language we use. And that's on us. It's not on them. That's completely on us. So um, that is kind of a, a long story short of where I got to and kind of the work that I continue to do working with HBCUs and HSIs on an everyday basis, simplifying communication and making the college going process and the college experience uh, a little simpler and a little more streamlined. Great, thank you so much. What about you, Ibrahim? So uh, I am a third year PhD student at U University of Texas at Austin in uh, the program of higher education leadership. So before uh, UT Austin, I uh, earned my master's degree from University of Wisconsin-Madison. Uh, before immigrating uh, to United States, uh, I was a mathematics teacher back in Turkey where I am originally from. So I earned my bachelor degree from back uh, Turkey and uh, I worked uh, as a high school teacher, high school ma mathematics teacher. And I worked with uh, mostly uh, college aspiring students. And uh, not only I helped for those students to, uh, you know, prepare uh, a college entrance exam, I also mentored uh, them towards you know, college uh, application process and, you know, continue to college. So, uh, I, you know, like I was uh, working in Turkey, then I uh, find out uh, a program for uh, study in the United States. So uh, I applied for scholarship, then I earned this like competitive scholarship to uh, study uh, in, in in the United States. So then, uh, you know, I came here for my study, uh, especially I want to do more higher education policy uh, because, you know, like policy, even though like as a classroom teacher, I observe my students uh, struggle in math, but like we have larger uh, systemic issues around uh, education policies. So uh, then, you know, I, I became familiar with the, uh, both United States higher education policies and uh, Turkish higher education policies, but like my research uh, solely focus on uh, United States uh, higher education policies. And that's all probably. I can talk. So currently I am working on a community college transfer project uh, with Dr. Shudi for three years right now. And uh, we are tracking uh, community college transfer students over six years from community college to four-year institutions looking at the bachelor degree attainment for those students. Great. Well, here's my first follow-up. Ibrahim, what was the move like from Madison to Austin? It was, uh, I mean, for weather, you know, uh, Austin is so much better. I don't miss anything. 
from Wisconsin in terms of weather, but like, you know, I had a great time in Wisconsin. I loved, uh, you know, like I, I, I learned a lot of things from my uh, first school, you know, in the United States. So it was uh, good in terms of uh, weather, but I miss my professors and my friends from Wisconsin. Zach is also from Wisconsin. Zach knows, you know, all those medicine and Wisconsin type stuff. Uh, I would love to be in Wisconsin right now because weather is great there. You wouldn't say that if we were doing this in February though. Yeah, absolutely not. <laughs> yeah. I remember like in my, uh, my, you know, graduation uh, date, uh, probably May 19th, we had a, you know, snow that day, still cold. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you both for that. How about, um, and this time, Ibrahim, why don't you continue? What are some hobbies you have outside of work? And then also, what sorts of things are you currently reading, watching, or listening to? Yep. So I usually uh, love playing card games with my friends. And uh, and I enjoy you know visiting state parks, having picnic, uh, you know like especially in Wisconsin that that you know these times uh, state parks are amazing so I I miss that part uh, but like you know I, here in, in this current situation I can't do any of them but uh, try to read and watching you know uh, tv series and specifically i am reading educated written by uh, tara westover and also i am watching community on netflix excellent and what about you zach what do you do for fun and what what sorts of shows or books or podcasts, music? What do you listen to? Yeah, so, you know, in terms of, of downtime these days, I try to avoid a screen as much as possible because I'm living, you know, a 10-hour professional day on a screen these days. So, you know, non-COVID times, I <clears throat> love you know, some of my favorite YouTube channels. I love watching Mark Rober do physics experiments and the Try Guys and Good Mythical Morning and um, some basketball mixtapes. I was a basketball player, so I love watching, you know, up and coming basketball players on YouTube. Um, that was kind of my pre-COVID relaxation. I'm also a musician, so I love, you know, playing guitar. I played guitar um, semi-professionally since I was about 16. And that has been a really great companion through this time because it does not require a screen. It's just you and your hands and the instrument, which has been really, really nice. Um, however, you know, the Tiger King phenomenon did sweep over my house. So I did watch Tiger King. <laughs> um, that was a nice diversion for a couple, couple of days. I actually um, powered through that pretty quickly. Yeah. Pretty entertaining, pretty terrifying <laughs> in some ways, but... That has been fun. And, and actually, you know, that's some of the reasons why Ibrahim and I get along so well is we're both kind of outdoors people. We'd like to be outdoors and, and do state parks and 
spend time outside. And unfortunately, circumstances don't really allow that a whole lot right now, but uh, we'll get back to normal and we'll get back to being our normal selves soon enough. Great. Um, I, I'm with you on the Tiger King thing. I was trying to think, do I want to admit that or not? But <laughs> I, I started and I couldn't stop watching it. So I totally get you. I watched it as well. Yeah, it just, yeah. it's yeah. something. Um, how about a favorite quote? Um, Ibrahim, do you have a favorite quote? Something that you turn to sometimes? Yes. Uh, I mean, I brought uh, a favorite quote from Educated right now. So, I mean, this is not like life-changing, but this is, uh, I think is a really good quote. My life was narrated for me by, by the others. Their voices were forceful, empathic, absolute. It had never occurred to me that my voice may be as strong as theirs. That's a great quote. Are you currently reading Educated or you read it yes. recently? Okay. I, I'm still re reading, yeah. Great. Yeah, I just, we actually used it in a course that I taught this fall, or in the spring, I guess. Um, so I'll have to check back with you and see what you think when you're done with it. Awesome. But Great. How about you, Zach? You have a quote? I do, yeah. Mine's really cheesy and simple, but it's um, that kind of infamous Wayne Gretzky quote now that you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. And, you know, I think it's especially applicable to graduate students and publishing and going to conferences. And sometimes it can seem very intimidating, but the worst thing anyone in academia can do is tell you no, or tell you revise and resubmit. And, you know, you'll never know how successful you can be if you don't try. And there's lots of reasons, personally, professionally, for people to be a little bit shy and, and not feel like they can dip their toes into that water, but super true in personal and professional circumstances. You really don't know how successful you can be unless you try. So I, I really live my life by that. Excellent. Um, and I, I appreciate you putting in the context of doc students because it is, I mean, I was a practitioner for a while, now a faculty member, but you know, the first time, you, well, we're talking about journal articles today, but the first time you hit submit, there's sort of this, ooh, should I have done that thing I just did? So um, we sort of revisit those notions as we move through different experiences. So excellent choice. Okay, so I have a would you rather question for each of you. Um, and hopefully this is fairly low risk, um, but, and I want to preempt this by saying I don't think either one of these situations are going to play out. But if you had to choose, so since you both like the outdoors, would you rather be able to get outdoors and be sort of unencumbered with where you can go, what you can do, and all of that, have, have all of those restrictions sort of taken away, but then only be able to engage with people via Zoom or online or phone, or 
would you rather not be able to go outdoors and enjoy nature and get what you need from that, but be able to interact with people face to face and in person, if you had to choose between those options? Ooh, I, I'm going to choose the people. I mean, yeah. I, and, and what is really interesting to me is some of the unintended effects of, of COVID. Just, we are such an inherently social, you know, species. We, we love people. We, we might think that online education and doing things virtually is, is going to be the future, but you know, a lot of people are just aching for human connection. So, you know, nature can can take a backseat to people, I think. But Ibrahim, what do you think? I absolutely agree with you. So I am a, you know, you know me, so I am a, a people person. So I love uh, getting to know people and their, you know, background, how they, uh, you know, became the person uh, they are currently it's important to understand their backgrounds you know like life experiences all sort of things I love getting to know people because if you know people and get to know people then you can understand better yourself you know like I grew up in Turkey and I came to United States I met like different people different backgrounds and all sort of things make me who I am right now. And I believe like I can uh, contribute their lives somehow with my experiences and background. So I really value to spend time with people sincerely, not like artificially, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm in hopes we'll be able to do both. See people yeah. face to face and not have to worry so much when we go out and engage with nature and the rest of the world. Um, yeah. I hope that comes sooner rather than later, but I also hope people are safe in the meantime. So absolutely, I appreciate that from both of you. Um, I think we'll go ahead and shift gears a little bit now and, and talk about your scholarship. So would you mind just sort of let us know how did this idea sort of evolve? Um, how did the two of you end up finding each other to work together? I mean, obviously you were in the same place, but how did you identify this as a common interest and sort of um, build the project? And how did your study come to be? Yeah, so kind of from some from my experiences inside the classroom and working with aspiring college students, you know, completing a college application in, in my experiences and in the experiences of many students is not as hard as the FAFSA and is not as hard as navigating financial aid. Financial aid is another whole beast. And so frequently the questions I would answer for students is stuff like what's an MPN? And when do I go through and who do I go through entrance counseling with? And what's a data retrieval tool? You know, like this is niche jargon that we shouldn't expect students to understand because they're only gonna really encounter it in this one setting uh, when they apply for aid for a post-secondary education. So thinking, how could we 
allow students access to a couple of different FAFSA instructions at a couple of different schools and kind of assess their literacy levels and their um, awareness and knowledge of financial aid jargon. I mean, when they encounter that information on the website, what don't students know? Um, and then, you know, meeting Ibrahim in classes, I mean, we kind of became fast friends because of our Wisconsin connections and we just get along, you know, really, really well. And so I was aware of Amazon Mechanical Turk, which is kind of human intelligence uh, crowdsourcing software through the Amazon platform. And we decided to do is take a random sample of FAFSA instructions on post-secondary websites, solicit uh, college students or aspiring college students to fill out a survey and read those instructions and identify those words kind of seeing if I could confirm what I'd experienced working with students. And, and then because Ibrahim is kind of the, the quantitative scholar on the back end, then he was the one responsible for um, helping analyze the data. I did more of the linguistics of the paper and it came together really, really well. Um, Ibrahim, what do, you, what do you think about kind of some of the questions that we were able to answer? Yep, so uh, this is a part of the larger survey we conducted. Uh, this paper specifically focuses on uh, first-generation students' financial aid jargon knowledge. So as uh, Zach mentioned, I uh, did analysis for a quantitative part. So Zach, uh, you know, came up with the idea that we collected data and you know, analyze data together. So uh, that's, the, that's the part of a larger survey. What were, sort? how did you develop your research questions? And then how did you build your protocol for, you, you talked about what you did. What were those conversations like between the two of you as you sort of developed this idea? Yeah, so first of all, I guess drawing on, I was, a, I was an English teacher and I, I taught remedial reading classes for a while. And one of the best ways to understand kind of broad concepts your students don't know is just have them identify specific terms. And this is especially, you know, important in fiction writing because so many fiction authors have such different lexicons they use and understanding how different words are used in different contexts and different genres is really important for vocabulary development. I kind of thought, you know, this seems like a different genre of text, like financial aid instructions is just a different genre. It's like horror or science fiction. It's just, you use a different lexicon. And so kind of applying some of those classroom pedagogy, literacy, evaluation, curriculum and instruction techniques that I used in the classroom to help students work through unfamiliar jargon, kind of did the same thing here. Um, and the, the main question that Ibrahim and I needed to kind of work through is in a survey setting, how much can you ask a respondent to read because financial aid application instructions are drastically different from school to school. Some schools use two paragraphs and 250 words. 
Some schools use 8,000 words, not exaggerating. It is that variable. So that was the first discussion of how much should we ask, you know, college students or aspiring college students to read. Second is what instructions should those be? So as part of a prior study on the readability and the accessibility of financial aid application instructions, I had a database of about 400 different sets of financial aid application instructions. And Ibrahim and I just simple random sampled from a public four-year, a private for-profit four-year, and a private nonprofit four-year institution. And those are the three texts we used. We kind of landed on three being um, enough text where we could really articulate the nuance in terms of lexicon by institution, which is actually in, in table four of the actual study, kind of a breakdown of the different words that different schools use to articulate the same process, which is filling out the FAFSA. And then understanding that if, if we are asking students to read three different, different sets of applications, um, how likely are they to complete the study if we're also asking for demographic information. So kind of from a feasibility standpoint, that's where we landed. And then um, Ibrahim did a really great job of, of analyzing the data in a way that only necessitated really one round of, of survey. We only ran it one round and we had, you know, way over a thousand responses, which was fantastic. And that's how we kind of knew that that level of reading, you know, those three documents and how our survey was written was just about the sweet spot to get um, a, a lot of good responses. Ibrahim, do you have any follow-up on that? Echoing like what you said, uh, selecting a sample from uh, three different type of institutions also uh, are helpful for future studies and uh, higher education practitioners can uh, apply or, you know, look at our study, like the public institutions, uh, nonprofit, uh, private institution and for-profit institution, uh, we selected three different type of uh, FAFSA instruct instructions from different type of institution, yeah. Um, and just to make note, uh, since you both mentioned the article itself, we will provide, <clears throat> excuse me, we will provide a link to the article so um, people can take a look and, um, and get the information directly from the, the study that you did, the publication that you have. Were there things that you sort of thought you would find out and then did those show up when you were analyzing? And then also were there things that you found out that totally caught you off guard that you hadn't expected? Yeah, there were a few things. So first, this is kind of like a, 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 meta, a meta analysis of the, of the analysis was, I was surprised at how many responses we had, mm -hmm. um, you know, asking, you know, aspiring college students to do almost any kind of survey is a, a tough ask in, in my professional setting. We survey students and institutions quite a bit and getting a high response rate is tough. And, you know, I was initially thinking, 
oh, it'd be great to get 500. And we got way more than that. So we're really happy with that. And that was a surprise. Um, also anticipating that if a student was either bilingual and maybe had a little bit less experience with the English language writ large, that might carry over into their financial knowledge. And we found that that was not the case. And also the age of a student, because we did ask for first gen status, but you know, a lot of students, especially I think now in a kind of amid the COVID-19 environment, a lot of non-traditionally aged students, you know, 25 and older, may be pursuing higher education for the first time, and they're first-gen students too. And oftentimes we don't really think of a first-gen student being 35 years old, but we thought maybe age would be predictive. Maybe the older you are, the more likelihood you might have to experience a financial system like having a bank account or taking out a home mortgage or paying an auto loan and having a little bit more financial savvy. And in terms of whether or not that predicts unfamiliar financial aid jargon terms, that also really wasn't true. So we, we had a few working hypotheses that actually did not really strongly bear out in the data too much. Um, Ibrahim, how about you? I was expecting uh, income would predict unfamiliar terms because like you know if you earn much more uh, salary you would you know have more financial knowledge generally and you would you would know more but uh, in addition to what uh, Zek said like income also doesn't predict uh, any of them uh, so it is interesting in addition to that uh, we you know, ask gender as well in our survey and non-binary folks also reported more unfamiliar terms in FEFSA instructions. So this is also interesting finding uh, compared to uh, our uh, baseline group men. So it is also interesting for me also, I want to uh, caution for for this uh, particular finding because non-binary students are a smaller part of our sample. That's why, like, it might not be uh, accurate or reliable in terms of like because of our sample size. I just want to caution that, but they report more unfamiliar terms. Implications for future research, right? Absolutely, yeah. Great. Yeah. So you talk in your work about acronyms and jargon that are problematic in the paperwork. I guess kind of two questions related to that. One, how would you like to see that specifically addressed within the realm of financial aid? And then do you have any suggestions for how people across student affairs could work to maybe make that um, financial aid process more approachable or more accessible for either current students or incoming students? Yeah, you know, because uh, there are some state level nuances, you know, the, the state of New York has their own 
kind of in-house state aid system. California has the Cal Grant, Texas has the TASFA, which is the Texas application for student financial aid that um, is a state level application system, but writ large, you know, 95% of college students, if they're going to go to college and they're going to get some sort of aid that they have to pay back, it's going to come through the FAFSA and through the federal aid system. And currently FSA on their website has a glossary of financial aid terms, hundreds of terms long, you know, terms like forbearance. Why does a student need to know what forbearance is to complete the application? And something that I want to draw listeners' attention to, especially in the paper, is across the three different texts that we had students read in this survey project, every single set of instructions was different, not in terms of how it was written at the sentence level grammatically, you know, it wasn't like a clausal or phrasal differences, it was actual words. Like there were words that were not used in some texts versus others. A really good example was the, um, uh, the, the term tax return transcript. You know, if you're selected for verification, you need to submit your 4506T form, which essentially verifies your parents' income and you know, helps you get through the verification process so you get your award package. So text two, the second text, used the term tax return transcript. No other text used that term. You know, it's, it's really interesting. Think about how common MPN is, master promissory note. You know, everyone needs to sign that. That didn't appear in other texts either. So it's the consolidation of those terms, which is so important. Going to the federal aid site, working with students and understanding what are the most frequently used terms that most all students need to know. If we can all agree in the financial aid world that students should know what FAFSA is, what MPN is, what entrance counseling is, and how to interpret their award letter, that would go a really long way to consolidating all that language for students so they're only exposed to a certain number of really complex terms. You know, to kind of piggyback on this idea, there were some schools that didn't define what FAFSA was. So just assuming that students know what that acronym is, and if we're talking about first-gen college students, they're doing these processes possibly on their own for the very first time ever, we can't assume that students are familiar with these terms in the first place. So I think it's a combination of explaining the acronyms if we have to use them. You know, MPN should be written as master promissory note and students should be educated on that term if we have to use it and then consolidating the lexicon from school to school. I'm thinking about regional organizations like a MASFA, the Midwest Association of Student Financial Aid Administrators. Those are all financial aid directors with the ability to edit their websites and consolidate their language. If students are exploring schools and seeing the same terms pop up on every school's website that also appear in the FAFSA, that would totally open the gates to understanding of those terms for students. So I think that's where we can start. And Ibrahim, do you have any other kind of practical practice implications from the study's findings? Thank you, Zach. So uh, you summarize really great. So uh, 
overall, like from uh, in addition to linguistic part, uh, if we look at uh, our result across different backgrounds among first generation students, we, we find similar results. So across race, uh, gender, income, status, we find that students struggle uh, regardless of their background. So uh, we need to, especially for practitioners, uh, need to not assume they know uh, all those acronyms or all those jargons uh, students are familiar. So uh, especially FAFSA uh, for not only prospective students, also uh, current students as well. So uh, working any practitioners who want to help for this process for students, uh, they uh, need to work with students about uh, this jargon and explain them in a uh, way that students understand. Well, and it's interesting as you're talking about this, something I hadn't thought about before is this is definitely an issue for first-gen students coming into higher education, but then for students who might transfer institutions to think, okay, I know what this process is like, and then have very different vocabulary used at another institution, that presents an additional obstacle or barrier for students to navigate. So, um, so the implications aren't just for the brand new right into college student as well. Yeah, and, and Michelle, to your point, in prior studies I've looked at, looking at system level financial aid application instruction. So not to pick on anyone in particular, but some you know, like, the, like the University of Texas system. Looking at all of those schools, each one of them explains how to complete the FAFSA differently. And that doesn't make a lick of sense. I mean, yeah, you might have a different school code. Yeah, there's going to be different contacts for the financial aid office. There might be different forms of institutional aid. But we're talking about one application and it being explained differently by seven or eight system schools. And we know then that there is a high incidence of in intra-system transfer, that they're transferring within the UT system. You know, a lot of students who start at UT Tyler might finish at UT Arlington or take a course at um, another UT system school. The fact that we're not in lockstep with other system schools is really troubling because then it gets to a point where how much communication and collaboration is going on between those different offices if we are within the same system. And the exact same thing was apparent in the SUNY system, in the University of California, University of Wisconsin systems there is not a standardized form of these instructions at the system level and super confusing for students to your point. So here's a question. I don't know if you all know this, but is that, especially when you're talking about um, systems of institutions, were they created differently from the beginning or you know, coming from student conduct, conduct codes are different at every school. And a lot of times what you see is this one strange thing happened at an institution, so now we have to make a rule about it. Is it more they started in the same place and they've gone different directions? Or did they start originally with 
this is how we're going to build it for our students coming to our institution. Do you have any sense of that? You know, what's interesting is there, I've noticed there is a sense of that in terms of institutional aid. So really well endowed institutions like, like a UT Austin, they communicate a lot more about institutional scholarships, institutional aid, state level aid, than lesser resource schools would because that kind of only makes sense. Mm -hmm. Although such a blanket application like the FAFSA, I have not found any evidence that there is any kind of relationship between the level of detail and institutional ranking by US News. I've explored relationships by school size, by Carnegie classification. There doesn't really seem to be a relationship between the complexity or the depth of financial aid information and institution type. And in the practitioner world, and I have interviewed at this point like hundreds of financial aid directors and assistant directors and counselors, and I've asked, who is writing your website? Like, who is the content creator? Like, all this stuff that students are seeing, who's writing it? And the consensus is something along the lines of, well, this person is a good writer and they wrote the instructions, but they left three years ago and no one ever revisited the website. It was kind of like, it's done, we check it off the list and we never audited our communication. And a lot of folks that work in higher ed and admittedly, a lot of folks that I've worked with have told me this directly, they don't have a background in writing. They're, they're, they're student affairs or they're business folks, especially in the financial aid world they haven't taken many classes about how to simplify writing and writing for student audiences. So a lot of what appears on a college website is not student friendly. And sometimes it's been written by someone who's no longer there. And, you know, how often do you edit your website? How often do you have students give you feedback on what you've written? Very rarely. So it's, it's definitely an issue that I think could be fixed, but it would take a little bit more um, attention to detail and involvement with students. Thank you for that. I, I mean, it is a unique intersection of skills to be a strong writer, have knowledge of the language, the system, the process unique to financial aid, and then not just be a strong writer, but be a strong communicator with students. That, that would be a pretty um, probably narrow pool of people to draw from who would have all of those those skills to bring to the work. Tough, very tough. Um, so are there, well, first question, are there additional resources, <clears throat> knowing that everyone should start by reading your article, right? So we'll make that a given. Um, but are there other resources that you recommend to either student affairs practitioners in general or more specifically, um, people working within the realm of financial aid. I do so, and not to not to pump uh, my own employer's material, but Trellis does a lot of work with simplifying and streamlining communication. We have excellent communication professionals and plenty of webinars. And Michelle, I'll send you the links to those. Great. It's basically about communicating effectively with students and simplifying communication. And in terms of institutional websites, two schools that I've worked with pretty closely, Texas A&M, and I, I feel sacrilegious saying this being a Longhorn, but 
the Aggies are doing the right thing. And Delisa Falks is the leader of their team at Texas A&M. Their website is very simple, very user-friendly. And the response to that has been really positive on both the student end and the practitioner end. Same with Georgia State. So Georgia State, I worked with them about a year ago, kind of understanding how a website could be redesigned that would be much more pathway focused and not, um, not so much like broad buckets of how to apply deadlines calendar. So it actually asks students, who are you? Are you seeking an associate's degree, a bachelor's degree? Well, follow this link. And then those students, those stakeholders are only shown information for financial aid that directly pertains to them. It's kind of a guided pathway through a website. That's an excellent resource. It's the Georgia State Student Financial Services website. It's, it's excellent and very, very user-friendly. And now a lot of schools might not have that capacity in terms of web development or content creation, but those are good places to start, at least modeling some of the language and the simplicity of the information that they have on those sites. Wonderful. Ibrahim, any other resources you would share? Or is that good? It just look, look good. Okay. Yeah. Then maybe we'll start with you and just a couple of questions left here. Um, are there things we haven't talked about about your scholarship and this article in particular that you want to make mention of or you want to highlight for listeners, Ibrahim? So as a first generation, uh, college student myself, like in Turkey as well as in the United States as well. So uh, it is really important for me to understand, uh, you know, whole higher education system in, in, in the United States also uh, financially jargon as well. So I uh, personally find valuable myself uh, for this study particularly and uh, I feel like it's going to be especially uh, both research site and the practitioner's site as well. This study is useful and hopefully uh, people will find, uh, you know, beneficial. Great. Yeah, I, I guess to add, it's not really kind of about the research, but kind of what somewhat goes into it. So. Um, Ibrahim and I kind of developed a friendship through research. I mean, we got together, I, I, I came over for some breakfasts with, which were delicious. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, we knocked yeah. These studies and we worked on them together and yeah. that, that was as rewarding as doing the work in the first place is having a friend to do it with and kind of piggybacking on that. I think a lot of graduate students I've talked to can feel really defeated and feel like academia is just a nut that is tough to crack and, and getting the work out there. And my best advice would be um, find research friends that you don't have to do the work with all the time that you share other interests with. So then when you're doing the work, you know, it, it seems like this kind of a friend's activity, which is what it seemed like with me and Ibrahim. And then yeah. secondly, um, I, I didn't have great experiences with faculty members encouraging me to do this work. Actually, speaking to one of these jargon studies, I had a faculty member tell me that what you do is not research. And that was kind of a sting. But then I found a few faculty members who really celebrated 
exploring new ways of doing stuff. And I already mentioned Dr. Reddick, but Josh Childs is, is another faculty member at UT Austin, and he is a rock star. He is so student focused and what he does and how he encourages you to keep going, keep pushing, keep trying. Um, I would encourage all graduate students to find your champion who believes in what you do and how you want to do it and is also supportive of you making your own mistakes because we learn through mistakes and he has been such a great guy. I mean, he is a fantastic faculty member, but a better person in my opinion. And finding those people, though that support network is as crucial as doing the work itself. You, um, I just shot it down a note a moment ago and you totally got to it, but it can be really tricky to find people that you can do research and write with. And so my question was going to be, how did that happen for you? But it really sounds like, I mean, obviously having a common shared curiosity around a subject, but then building a relationship that's not just about the research. Um, it sounds like that's kind of what, what you all brought into it. Any other suggestions as, you know, knowing that there are probably doc students, new faculty practitioners who are looking to do research projects. Any other suggestions about how to build that relationship with another researcher and author? So I can, I can share our, our uh, work experience. So I think like at first uh, building trust is important part of like uh, collaborating couple of projects like if you want to collaborate uh, you know for couple of projects or over your lifetime right so if you find this kind of partner it is really important Zach is uh, you know obviously my research partner also as she as he mentioned we are not just like you know uh, researcher we are also friends I also want to uh, highlight that our both of uh, both of us like have different kind of skill sets. I think this is also important to do uh, any kind of research. So Zeke is a writer, and uh, he, you know, like knows uh, all the all those jargons and linguistic parts of uh, this study or our uh, broad. Uh, project. I am a quantitative uh, scholar, so I know uh, statistical part. And I think, like, if we work together, we strengthen our, uh, you know, the other part. So Zeke knows better statistics right now, so I know better, you know, linguistic part through this uh, collaboration. So I, I think, like, uh, not only find a similar person. If you find like uh, a partner with different uh, set of skills, uh, they can also, uh, you know, benefit from this co collaboration. Yeah, Ibrahim, I, I totally agree. And that is one thing that in, in speaking with other grad students that those opportunities are not really facilitated. It is so easy to collaborate with people who are like-minded and have the similar skill sets. It's so easy. I mean, we even divide classes up into quantitative and qualitative. And 
oftentimes we don't make both of them required. You can pick one and you can actually almost self-isolate in that way and you only expose yourself to people who think the same way you do and want to do the same research you do. And there's not that kind of collaborative clashing of ideas and that kind of critical discussion. And like Ibrahim said, I learned as much from Ibrahim as he learned from me. And that helped our friendship then is because we felt like it was mutually beneficial, like it was a reciprocal relationship. And so I would really encourage grad students and, and anyone who wants to find a research partner is to don't go to the usual suspects, like reach across the aisle a little bit and find someone who maybe is research adjacent to you with a different skill set that you can learn something from through the process. And, and then you start doing really creative stuff because you're not in the same line of thinking. You're not doing the same methodology. It, it becomes kind of a fusion, which can be really productive. I appreciate that a lot. Are, are the two of you still working on projects together? Or are you in between partnership and looking for another opportunity down the road? <laughs> I, Ibrahim and I are kind of lifelong, <laughs> lifelong research yeah. together. I think we have, I don't know, seven or eight other things that we could do and that yeah. we're doing currently. I mean, yeah. more, more papers under review. I think right now we have three or four under review. So it's, it's been awesome. And I don't think it's going to stop anytime soon. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, that sounds great. Um, so just kind of as we wrap up, is there anything else that you want to share? Certainly about your research in this article, but um, other things that you're doing, um, excited about in work or research that you want to kind of close with? Um, I guess just in closing, um, this is kind of off the beaten path a little bit, but given um, given what is going on in our country beyond COVID with the kind of the racial unrest and the, the flat out murder of people of color in this country, just acknowledging what a privilege it is to be on a podcast and talk about a paper. You know, it seems in some ways very inconsequential and, and, and very minimal as to what's kind of going on writ large in this country, but um, just kind of acknowledging that, that doing research is an absolute privilege because a lot of people in this country don't have that privilege and, and may never have it. It may, it may always be kind of systemically denied. So acknowledging that and what a, what a privilege it is and just trying to always do the equity work and letting the work speak louder than words is really important to me. And that's kind of my kind of closing message, just um, doing the work in solidarity with people and making sure to acknowledge the privilege of even being able to do the work in the first place. I really appreciate that. Thanks, Zach. So I also want to acknowledge, especially during these, uh, you know, all those uh, coronavirus stuff, people lost their jobs. And uh, I also acknowledge my privilege that I'm working from home and I don't uh, lose my job. And you know, I can continue to work uh, from home. This is, you know, this is also privilege. And uh, especially for this, uh, you know, project, you know, first generation students, uh, we will see probably more uh, people going back to college 
to get you know new skill sets to go back to uh, workforce so this is kind of uh, important for uh, for future uh, you know students that's the thing I can see yeah I, I appreciate both of you closing with sort of this um, note of gratitude and acknowledgement of the, the privilege that we sit in and also the fact that this work, you know, this is research, this is a published paper, but this has real world implications. And it really is about in higher education, who are we welcoming in and who are we putting obstacles in front of? And with a sense of hope, assuming that some of those obstacles are unintentional, how do we remove them? Um, to get more access for first-gen students and, and others who are trying to navigate their way into and through higher education. So thank you both very much for that. I appreciate it. And I'm just grateful that you all were willing to take some time and talk with us today. Um, as you alluded to, there's a lot of turmoil and pain in the world right now. And the fact that you were willing and able to spend some time and, and share your work really means a lot to me. So I appreciate that. I hope that you each individually, as well as our listeners are doing all right and have the support and, um, you know, people to turn to and uh, a sense of hope as we look to the future. And, you know, before we go kind of with that in mind, I'm interested in leaving on it with a, a sense of hope. Are there, would each of you mind sharing, you know, some things in your world, whether it's work related, whether it's personal, um, but some things that are giving you a sense of hope right now. Ibrahim, would you mind going first? What is the hope? I mean, uh, specifically for, you know, like I am a positive person overall, even if like, if we see the, the bottom rock, you know, like uh, we always have good people in this world and people want to have, uh, you know, more justice, equitable work, uh, world. so they, uh, they will work for that. Uh, so I I am a hopeful hopeful in people like overall even if uh, you know system uh, may not work for some people but like based on uh, with those good people we can change the world and uh, hopefully world become more uh, peaceful and people have more justice and equitable uh, earning and all kinds of things. Beautiful, thank you. How about you, Zach? Yeah, so I, I think doing things like this, like talking to people critically about scholarship at a time when it might be really hard to do so and really hard to find the motivation. I also think um, something I'm really hopeful about is 
talking with college students about how much they dislike online learning and they, they want a face-to-face, -face, immersive, personal, social experience. I think that's really hopeful for higher education that people are people who like people and want to be around people. And that this kind of, in a weird way, really weird natural experiment hasn't hasn't severed relationships. People more than ever are trying to reach out and connect with people, um, even though it might be hard and it, and it might not be, um, might not feel right right now. And another thing I'm really hopeful about is, you know, as as time goes on, that uh, amid the, the the riots and some of the protesting that's going on about, you know, uh, the George Floyd and and, and others, that there is still a massive push to change how people of color and other minoritized people in this country are treated, even though, you know, COVID might be zapping a lot of the motivation and a lot of the energy from folks that that, that, that energy to activate is still there. And that's really, really hopeful. I'm, I was really kind of glad to see that there was so much energy behind some of those events because um, we know then that it hasn't broken anyone's spirit. So that's fantastic to see, even though it's also kind of hard to watch. Right. Well, thank you both again very much. Um, our guests today have been Ibrahim Bicek and Ibrahim, best of luck moving ahead in your doctoral program. Thank you. And Dr. Correct, Dr. Zach Taylor. I just want to say that a couple times so you can get used to hearing it. Congratulations on finishing the degree and moving on to what's next. And thank you so much for being here today, Zach. Awesome. Thanks, Michelle. So this has been SA Today. And we want to thank SAXA for their support. And also, I want to make sure I thank Erica Lee, who helps with the show and is the producer. Um, and I guess we'll just kind of close with that. I, I appreciate the notes of hope and gratitude at the end. And my name is Michelle Botcher. It's been a pleasure to host this episode. And I hope you all have a beautiful day. Take care. Have a nice day.